Father, we come to your word and, and some of us are really excited for this point in the service. Some of us are really ready. Others of us, we, we're not. And, and some of us may even think, what's the point? What's the point in opening this word again? Some of us might not even be thinking about this word at all. Our minds might be in a completely different place right now, overwhelmed, overcome with stress. Satan loves this. He will use whatever subtle tactic he has to to keep the gaze of our hearts off of you and the glory of your gospel through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray as we open your word that your spirit would guard our hearts, that we would encounter the beauty of the gospel even in this Old Testament text. I pray that you would speak and I pray that your spirit would open our hearts to receive this word. And we pray that you would give us what we need, even if it's not what we want. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to be seated. We are going to be in Jonah chapter 4. So if you have a copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, um, Jonah 4 will be on the screen, and shame on you. Oh, did I say that out loud? Did I say that out loud? I'm, I'm so sorry. Totally did not mean to say that out loud. Jonah chapter 4. Love hearing the pages turn. Um, you know, sometimes whenever we have readers come up, we, I always do a horrible job of like preparing the readers. I and mean, it's just like, just, I'll just admit that, like horrible. I'm just like, hey, will you read this? Okay, fine. And it's like, because for me, I don't, like it doesn't bother me to come up and, and speak or talk or anything, but it's like, for some folks, it's like coming up on stage and talking into a microphone and reading, you know, something from the Bible is really stressful. Uh, but uh, I, I, love, I love when we can wait and just hear all the pages turning and then it's like finally sit in silence. And actually, we're going to take one more step this morning. You know, this past Wednesday night, uh, we talked about silence before the word and, and like morning meditations before, before we actually get into the word. And so I want us, I want us to practice that. So if, if you want to pray personally, just for your own heart, if you just want to maybe catch your breath, Let's not feel like we have to constantly, I mean, you know we don't rush here, but like, let's not feel like we have to constantly rush into the very next thing in the service. I mean, if I'm going to preach a sermon that lasts an hour and 15 minutes, I'm going to do it, you know, I mean, hope you guys had a good breakfast, but um, I do want us to take uh, just maybe, maybe a couple minutes just, and just be silent. Now, again, if they're, they're noise, like whatever, like it's not, it's not the end of the world, I don't, I don't really care about that, but let's just see if we can just look at the word. Maybe you want to read it to yourself even before I do, uh, or take a moment to pray, but uh, we'll just, I'll just sit for like a minute, and then, and then I'm going to read the text.
Jonah 3 ends like this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. If if this is your first time in the series of Jonah, the whole premise of the whole book is God has this mission that he wants to take a word from his prophet who is in Israel to a wicked pagan city called Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was growing in power. It was, it was really on the rise. Um, they were threatening all surrounding nations. Assyria was a genuine threat to Israel, genuine threat to their existence as a nation. And the God of Israel calls one of his own prophets, this is unusual in the Old Testament, to go to that wicked city, to go to Nineveh that's in the Assyrian Empire, and to tell them judgment is coming. He doesn't doesn't tell Jonah to say, but if you turn from your wicked ways, I will relent. I will not pour judgment out on you. I will show you mercy. He just says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them judgment is coming. Okay? And we're confused because Jonah immediately responds with disobedience. This isn't common among the prophets. He immediately responds with disobedience. In, in Jonah 1, he, he gets out and he desires to go to the farthest place he possibly can away from where God wanted him to go. And through a series of circumstances, the Lord sends a storm on, a, on the sea where Jonah was trying to go to this place called Tarshish and the storm ends up getting so bad that Jonah says, just toss me overboard. Just toss me overboard. It'll, let's be done with this. And the sailors that are on board, they do toss Jonah overboard before they actually probably have some sort of spiritual conversion to faith in the one true God. And then, as we know, the most famous part of the story of Jonah, Jonah is swallowed by this, this massive fish, and while he's in the belly of this fish, he prays to God. He's clearly thankful that God has saved him. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, it looks like all is well. Jonah has finally come to his senses. He has finally turned around. He has finally repented, and he does what the Lord calls him to do. He goes to Nineveh, and he preaches what the Lord tells him to preach. Now, the word is... Judgment is coming. And it's like the most shocking plot twist ever where you have this wicked nation with this wicked king and all of the people, they actually respond to the word of the Lord with broken-hearted repentance. And they turn. It's like best-case scenario. Like the most successful sermon ever preached, right? He goes in and he preaches this sermon and they all respond with repentance. This wicked nation Even the king. Okay, and then verse 10. It's just like this beautiful end of the story. It's beautiful, right? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Like verse 9, look, look, at, look at verse 9, the Ninevites. This was their perspective. Who knows? They've turned from their evil ways. And they're like, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They don't even know if God's going to spare them. 
They don't even know that promise from God. If you turn to me in faith and repentance, I will show you mercy. They didn't even know that, and they turned. It's, it's a great end of the story. It, it frustrates me. It's almost like, uh, you know, I'm not even going to refer to books, so like Netflix, okay? So like there are so many Netflix, se- especially the series, or even just like series of, of shows on TV where there's that cliffhanger, you know, at the end of, of like series three, and you're like, <gasps> you know, and like, you know, now with Netflix where you can just, you know, watch the very next one, binge watch it, like you automatically know what's next. But like before, like as The Office, when it was like coming out on TV, it'd be like you have to wait like three months, you know, to see what happens next. And they were awesome at it. All these shows are great, like these cliffhangers at the end of the season. But don't you notice that so many shows, they struggle to kind of wrap up the show? It's like they struggle to have that like final episode, that finale where it's just great. It's like The Office is a great example. And all, all the Office lovers in here, it's like in the middle of season seven, you know, when, when Michael Scott leaves, it's like in the show end the show like great he's he's gone everyone's sad just lovely you can celebrate (sighs) but then there's season eight and then there's season nine and it's like they had a hard time figuring out how can we end this thing how can we end it Jonah the story of Jonah doesn't have that problem the end of Jonah three that's the end of the story it's beautiful it's fantastic let's all rejoice in the repentance of this evil people and then we have chapter four because the author of Jonah wants you to know, hey, we're operating in the real world here. And everything isn't pleasant. Sometimes even the Lord's own people still don't get it. Let's read Jonah 4. So after the Ninevites respond with repentance, we read this at the beginning of Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. <laughs> like if, you've, if, if you're reading Jonah for the first time, you just don't see this coming, you know? You think Jonah's problems are behind him. He's already repented, right? He was in the belly of the whale, and it kind of feels like repentance. You're kind of doubting, but it feels like it. And then he does, like, he does go. God calls him to go to Nineveh. He does obey. He does go, and he does preach. It displeased him that God saved this people? Um, there's another way to translate this, this passage, you, you might, in your Bible, there might be a footnote that, that goes to the bottom, and the footnote says, and, you know, another literal way to translate the Hebrew is, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. That's another valid way to translate this. Can you imagine that? Jonah actually thinks that it is evil, evil, that the Ninevites were spared. Okay. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said... Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? See, we didn't know what Jonah said to God whenever, you know, back in chapter one, we're not given that information. We don't know why Jonah decides to leave. We can guess, we can formulate opinions, but we don't really know. And now he's like, is this not what I said? I said this. I knew you would do it. Listen to what he says. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Can you imagine this? Do you know what this passage is from? It's in a number of places in scripture, most prominently in Exodus 34. 
Exodus 34, where the Lord describes his character to Moses after Moses has interceded for the people after they have, you know, formulated these idols. And Moses intercedes, and then the Lord, he shows this compassion and mercy to his own people, and then he describes himself in exactly this language. And Jonah is using the word of the Lord to accuse the Lord. He's like, see, I knew it. I knew I shouldn't have come. I knew. I was right. I was right not to obey you. I was right not to follow your command because I knew that you were merciful. I knew that you were abounding in steadfast love. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you would do this. He's livid. Verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, just please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, Jonah has lost it over the salvation of the Ninevites. He's lost it. He'd rather die. I don't want to live in a world where Ninevites receive mercy. I don't want to live in a world where you're not just good to me, you're good to someone else. And then the Lord, he's so patient. He's so patient. Like, can you imagine? I'd be like, boy, boy, what do you say to me? Like, it was like, you know, one time, I'm going I'm to really tell on myself here. I better be careful. Um, but uh, we, were, we were at uh, Walmart. I've told a number of you guys this story, so I think I'm okay. We were at Walmart. It was me and Jude and Jack, okay? And uh, <laughs> I always have this rule with them because they have so much energy when they're in that store, and they just want to go, and they grab everything. And I learned my lesson the hard way a couple times where I would let them pick stuff up, and then they throw it in the cart, and then we can't get it back out of the cart, you know? It's like the end of the world to get something out of the cart. We don't need 14 oranges, you know, like just random, just thrown in. Um, but uh, so anyway, we, we had this rule where it's like when we're in an aisle and there's no one else in the aisle, I'll let them run to the end of the aisle, you know, just like is a fun kind of thing. Just and they'll do that. Well, one time we were in the store together and uh, she's looking at me like she's like, oh, my goodness, this is so scary. What is this? I already told you the story, by the way. Um, but uh, Jude and Jack, they run, they get to the end of the aisle, and uh, instead of stopping like they always do, they go out into the main aisle and they run in opposite directions. <laughs> So now I have a choice to make. Like, I can't get them both at the same time, you know? And so I go after the little man. Like, I go after Jack, you know? And so he turns to the right, and I'm running, and I grab him, and I'm like, Jack, don't do that, you know? And I turn back around, and Jude's gone. Like, I can't see him. And so I'm like, ah, oh, man, like, at first. And so I go down the one aisle, and he's not there. And I look down the second aisle, and he's not there. And that's when I start to panic. Just that, that feeling where you feel like you can't breathe, you know? Like, I've lost him. Like, and then it was like I looked down the third aisle and he wasn't there. And I was like, okay, it's almost decision time. Like, I'm going to have to go tell someone, you know, before. Anyway, three more aisles down and that bro's just walking up with an employee, you know? Um, just, but here's, here's the funny part. Um, well, maybe just the part that connects. It's really not that funny. When he gets to me, I don't even have a chance to say anything. Jude looks at me and he says, oh, where were you? I'm like, you are so lucky that this employee is standing right here. Like, I'm like, boy, you know who you're talking to? Where was I? You know, th this is Jonah, though. He's, he's like, I knew it. I knew I shouldn't have obeyed you. I knew that you'd be good to them. How dare you be good to them? And then the Lord's patient with Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? He says in verse four. And then we have kind of a shift in the scene. 
verse 5. It's a parable of sorts, but I believe it happened. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he's pretty convinced that God's going to show mercy to the Ninevites, but he's holding out so much hope. It's almost like he has like a stopwatch and he just sits and he's like, 40 days, you know, start, and just sits there and waits and waits and waits and waits, hoping, hope. This man is sitting outside and he sets up his seat to look in on the city to hope that God destroys it. This is a prophet of the Lord. He's hoping with everything that is in him that God would actually not show mercy to Nineveh, but destroy them. He is the anti-missionary, you know? Like, Jonah knows all of this stuff about God, right? He knows his character. He knows his word. And instead of staying in the city to help maybe disciple these people who had just repented and turned toward the Lord, he goes outside the city and he's like, please don't do what I think you're going to do. And if God did decide to destroy Nineveh, he would have looked on with gladness. Okay, and so then in verse six. Now the Lord God, it's, it's awesome how God teaches him a lesson. It's just awesome. Appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah cracks me up in ver- at this next part. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Like this, like the author, he, you know, he's intentionally drawing this, this contrast. Remember chapter four, verse one, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was exceedingly angry at the salvation of the Ninevites. And now he's exceedingly glad because this little plant has grown up over his head. So he's not as hot. He's not as, he's, he's more comfortable now. Then in verse seven, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm has this plant grow up just to, just to create a worm to go and eat it. He says, that, that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Like, what's wrong with this guy? He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Verse 10. And the Lord said, here's the lesson. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Yeah, I don't know. I, I got a thought, but we don't have time for it. And then the story ends. It seems like the end of chapter 3 is a better natural ending to the story. Jonah 4 ends with a question because the question is not just for Jonah. The question is for us. 
I'm so glad Jonah 4 is here. I, I have two points from Jonah 4, and then I have a third, a third point where we're going to look at how Jesus is the greater Jonah one more time. First point this morning I want us to look at is selfish anger with God's mercy ruins our place in God's mission. I'll say it again if you guys taking notes. Inside your liturgy guide, there are actually two pages where you can take notes if, if that's helpful for you. Um, first truth again is selfish anger with God's mercy ruins our place in God's mission. And that's basically what we see here. We have the two characters. We have Jonah and we have God. And what's highlighted in this passage is Jonah's anger and God's mercy. Jonah's anger and God's compassion. And Jonah's anger is completely inconsistent with the mission of God, and obviously God's mercy and his compassion is the motivation for God's mission, for his people of all time, but even today, especially, his people, the church. So um, I want us to consider, yeah, first, that selfish anger with God's mercy ruins our place in God's mission, and then secondly, we're going to consider how sovereign mercy reorients our mission as God's people, and we'll get to that in a second. So first, selfish anger with God's mercy ruins our place in God's mission. Now, how do we know that Jonah was angry with God's mercy? Because Jonah is clearly angry here. He's, he's clearly angry. He is angry that the Ninevites are going to be spared. Now, he could be angry about a number of things, and I think all of these things are at play in Jonah's heart. He is angry that the Ninevites are still alive. Okay, probably for political reasons. He's scared to death that, that Assyria is going to attack Israel. And guess what? A little bit later, that's exactly what's going to happen. Like Jonah was right. He was right. If, if you don't judge these people and if you don't kill them, and they deserve it, God. They deserve it. They don't deserve your grace. They don't deserve your mercy. But if you don't judge them, they will judge us. If you don't destroy them, they will destroy us. It's a survival mechanism. And when Jonah recognizes that God, the only one who was fully capable of wiping out this people, decided to spare them, he's livid. He's livid because he cares so much about his own people. So he's angry about that. He's angry that he feels like he's wasted his time, right? Like, he's, he's like, okay, the whole reason I left in the first place is because I was afraid that you would show mercy. And for some reason, it, something must have turned in Jonah's mind because there was not genuine repentance in Jonah. But there's something that turned in his mind whenever he was in the sea and God saved him in the belly of the whale. We're going to look at, we're gonna look at a, a line in that prayer that I think highlights his hypocrisy and self-righteousness in a second. But... Jonah, something turned in his mind where he was like, okay, God has spared me. He must really want to do what I want to do because otherwise he would have just killed me. You know, Jonah, when he's on the boat, he's fully willing to die because he's like, I'd rather die than go and do what God wants me to do. And then once he's spared, something turns in his mind and he's like, well, maybe, maybe God's got it figured out now. And he is going to destroy this people. Maybe he's not going to, you know, grant them mercy. And, and, and maybe they're not going to turn from their w wicked ways. You know, maybe I'm overreacting. And then when he goes and he preaches and they do repent, he's like, I've wasted my time. I could have been dead, you know, weeks ago. So he's angry. 
But that's not where his anger is primarily directed. His anger is primarily directed at God's mercy. Now, he does not hate God's mercy per se. You know, he doesn't hate God's mercy for, for God's mercy itself. He hates the scope of God's mercy. He is more than happy to receive God's mercy for himself. And he is more than happy for his own people, the Israelites, to receive God's mercy. But Jonah hates that God would extend mercy to anyone else. He hates that about God. We see it. Well, first, um, I think his anger reveals three heart problems. And that's what I love about Jonah 4. This whole time in the story of Jonah, we're just kind of given details and we're kind of guessing what Jonah's thinking and we're guessing what he's feeling, all this stuff. We get like this in-depth insider's look into Jonah's heart. And it may help us to evaluate our own hearts. So his anger reveals three heart problems. First, selfish anger with God's mercy reveals self-righteousness. So there's self-righteousness in Jonah's heart. Selfish anger with God's mercy reveals self-righteousness. Jonah cringes at God's mercy to Nineveh because Jonah seems to believe that mercy has to be earned, that mercy has to be merited, that mercy has to be deserved. And while he and his own people deserve mercy, Nineveh clearly does not. Turn back to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. And there's, there's much debate on just the you know, legitimacy of this prayer. Is this a genuine prayer? And are there any elements of repentance? And I think in light of chapter 4, we can look back on this prayer in, in the belly of the fish and recognize, you know, Jonah's really happy that God saved him. But there's just something off about Jonah, and it's clarified now. So look at with me in verses 8 and 9 in chapter 2. He has this prayer. He's going on and on. It kind of feels like a psalm. Verse 9 is beautiful. Listen. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Like, it's wonderful, beautiful. And that's kind of the one that we focus on. But look at verse 8. And I'm going to read them together. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord to give to those who deserve it. He probably wanted to add. You see, Jonah's like, yeah, we are your people. We believe in the one true and living God. We don't worship all these idols like these other pagan peoples do. We don't worship the idols, so we have not forsaken our hope for your steadfast love. You give us your steadfast love because we first have forsaken our idols. But anyone who still clings to idols, they have forsaken their hope of steadfast love. They're not good enough. They haven't cleaned their life up enough yet to receive your steadfast love. They've forsaken that hope. You know, like the Ninevites. You know, Jonah's probably thinking to himself, you know what I'm talking about, God? The Ninevites, they worship these false gods. They've forsaken their hope, yes? Jonah's self-righteous. 
The moment we begin to presume upon God's mercy is the moment we will begin seeing ourselves as deserving and others as undeserving. And it may creep in so that you don't even notice it. Your particular theological leanings are correct and everyone else is wrong. And it may start out as just discussion and debate and you still love one another as brothers, but it could get to a point to where you've created a a second law. You don't believe exactly like I believe. I don't even know if you can be a Christian. You don't live exactly how I think you should live. I don't know that you can be a Christian. That's presuming upon God's mercy. God is merciful to me, and he will always forgive my sins, but my sins aren't like yours. Mm, I don't know. I don't know if he will forgive that. I don't know if he will show mercy on you or those kinds of people. It's self-righteousness. And when, when you have self-righteousness in your heart like that, when you do see God show mercy to people that you think definitely don't deserve it, there will be this anger that builds up in you. You know, I think of people who, ha- you know, we've been talking about abuse and the SBC's response to abuse. I, I, this is a real issue. This isn't petty. Like, you know, think of people who have been abused. And then you see a child molester who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus. There may be a part of you that's happy about it. There may be another part of you that's like, oh, I hate that. It just doesn't feel right. Jonah can't reconcile in his mind the mercy and the justice of God. How can God be merciful to these people? They deserve, do you know what they do to people? They don't deserve to be forgiven for that. They deserve to be punished for that. Jonah wrestles with it. Um, But self-righteousness, it also stifles mission. You see, self-righteousness makes demands of others that God does not make of them. It causes us to evaluate whether or not a person or group of people are worthy enough. Self-righteousness causes us to think of ourselves far too much. Not necessarily that we think too much of ourselves, but that we think of ourselves far too much. It brings us into conflict with God when his will contradicts our own. Jonah can't get on board with God's mission. He can't. He hasn't repented. He hasn't turned. He can't get on board with God's mission. Because God's mercy isn't meeting his expectations. He's not submitting to the will of the Lord. He's asking the Lord to submit to his own will. And guess what? He's not on board with God's mission. And guess what? Neither will you and neither will I. If we place conditions on God's mercy, if we have expectations of God's mercy that are completely against his counsel and his word. So, Self-righteousness is a heart problem that will stifle mission. The second heart problem we see in Jonah is his religious rebellion. Selfish anger with God's mercy reveals religious rebellion. And that's where we look in verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Okay. Jonah has right theology here. He knows it. He knows the word. He knows the Bible. He knows all of this stuff about God. But that's the thing. Jonah's mad at God for being God. 
he's mad at God because he knows God is merciful. He, he wants no part of God's mercy if God's mercy extends to people like the Ninevites. He's not on board. He uses scripture to justify his disobedience. You see, you, you remember back in Jonah 2, and even here in Jonah 4, whenever the shade tree comes over his head, he's like, ah, that's better, that's nice. And he exceedingly rejoices. He's so happy with, with God's providence in providing this tree. And when he's in the belly of the fish, he's so thankful. He's so thankful for God's salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he cries. I mean, why, that should be the last line at the end of Jonah 3, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. He saves who he wants to save. He shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. No, Jonah's mad. Jonah's mad because he wants to dictate God's mercy. So what he's doing is he's rebelling against God, but he's doing it in a very religious way. Jonah believes right doctrine, but his heart is completely unaffected by it. That's very possible. Be warned by this. I will encourage you probably more than anyone to study theology. I will. I love it. I love to read. I love to study. I love to gain more knowledge. But be warned. You can have right theology. You can know all the Bible verses you want. You can memorize scripture with your discipleship group. You can read as many books as you want. And Jonah here is proving that we can actually take our knowledge of God and flip it and turn it against him. You can still rebel against God in the depths of your spirituality, in the depths of your religious adherence, and in the depths of your theological knowledge. Because doctrine without devotion leads to destruction. Doctrine without devotion leads to destruction. Having a head full of knowledge and a heart devoid of love leads to destruction. Sound theology, apart from true heart change, is self-condemning because sound doctrine is no match for pride. You can have all the right information stored in your brain, but if pride is in your heart, it will use all of that information to condemn you. Oh, you know that God is merciful? Yeah, and I hate it. Well, you don't hate God's mercy. Well, you should see how good he is to this kind of person. They don't deserve it. I know what's best. He won't listen to me. Religious pride stifles mission, obviously. Mere theological knowledge isn't enough to motivate mission, okay? We, we can read, there, I have a number of books in there that just defends why we should take the gospel to those who don't have it. And, you know, some of you are like, why do you need a bunch of books that say that? Like, you ever read the Great Commission? You, know, you ever read the end of Matthew? You ever read Acts 1-8? Right, you can take all of that knowledge too. That's not enough to motivate mission. If your heart is cold to the will of God, and the mercy of God and the compassion of God, and you're not on board in your heart, it doesn't matter if you're on board in your brain. It doesn't matter if you're like, we should definitely be partnering with people across this nation and across the world to advance the gospel. It doesn't matter if you know that's what we should do in your brain. If your heart is cold to the mercy and compassion of God, you won't do it. 
I promise you right now, you can guilt yourself all day long saying, I really need to share the gospel with someone. If you are cold in your heart to lost people, you can know that you should do that all day long. You will not do it. But if your heart is warmed by the mercy and compassion of God, and you see yourself not as someone who's deserving of mercy, but deserving of judgment, then how could you not take what you have received and share with those who don't yet know it? And so Jonah's blasphemy here in verse two, it, it causes me to ask myself, will you be an agent of God's grace who accomplishes God's mission or will you be a rogue rebel who abandons his mission in the name of theology? Selfish anger with God's mercy reveals religious rebellion. Okay, and there's one more heart problem that, Jonah, that we see in Jonah and that we see in ourselves. It's idolatry. So we had self-righteousness, rebellion, and now idolatry. Selfish anger with God's mercy reveals idolatry. Jonah says in verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And you see what Jonah's saying. It's better for me to die. I would rather, li- I would rather die than live in a world where God shows mercy to Ninevites. I'd rather die. All right. If I can't have blank, I'd rather die is a statement that reveals what you truly worship. If I can't have whatever whatever it is, you're still in the blank. If I can't have this, I'd rather die. I can't live without it. That's what you truly worship. Jonah does not worship God. Because he's like, I can't live in a world... I can't live in a world where you're good to these kinds of people. I can, I can die. I don't, I don't need you to live. Here's what I need. I need for Israel to receive mercy and peace, and I need everyone else to perish. That's what I need. And Jonah's like, it looks like to me I'm not going to get that, so I would rather die. Jonah can live without God, but he can't live if God shows mercy to those he thinks doesn't deserve it. Jonah idolized his religious community. He idolized it. His love for Israel was good, both nationally and spiritually. It was good. His love for his country and his love for the people of God spiritually, it was, it was good. It was inordinate, though. It was out of order because he loved them more than he loved God. So when he felt like God's mission threatened his ideal for his religious community and for his nation, he rebels against God. He doesn't reconsider his own views. He idolized his religious community and it blinded him to the mission of God. Do you know how easy that is for us to do in this room? To idolize our local church, to idolize our ministries, to idolize the things that we are doing. If we start to do that, we will become blind to the mission of God because we will only be focused inwardly. We will only be focused on one another. We will only be focused on the things that are happening week to week in the life of our church. And as we start to make plans, think about it. Think about how practical this is. 
If this community is an idol for us, when we start thinking about expansion of the building, when we start thinking about the parking lot, our priority will be, how can we make this a better experience for us? Instead of, how can we reach the city with the gospel? How can we utilize this building? How can we utilize and steward our funds? How can we do all of the ministries that we do to be on board with God's mission to reach this city with the gospel? You'll never think those thoughts. You'll never have those priorities if you idolize this church. I'd rather die than this church do something that doesn't go right along with my personal desires. You'll blind yourself to God's mission because that's what Jonah did. Okay, so a question before we move to the second point. How does being angry with God's mercy ruin our place in God's mission? Because that's my contention, that when you're angry with God's mercy, you ruin your place in God's mission. And Jonah did. One of two ways. Either Jonah just does not understand God's mercy, and so it's, it's a real possibility that he might not even be under God's mercy, okay? He might not be regenerate because he's, his idea of mercy is so warped. Now, I don't want to take like a snapshot of Jonah and just like critique him like that, but that's possible. It's possible for you and me. If you are angry when people who aren't like you come to saving faith in Jesus, you need to do some spiritual inventory, do I truly trust the Jesus of the Bible or do I have this fabricated Jesus who only shows mercy to people like me? Because if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, you're not under God's mercy, you're under his wrath. So that's one possibility. But secondly, if we are angry with God's mercy shown to people who aren't like us or people we think don't deserve it, we will not be agents of God's mercy. We won't be. If, if you're angry when God shows mercy to certain kinds of people, would you ever be an agent of his mercy to certain kinds of people? No. No, you will forsake his mission. So, so Jonah here, his character development, it's a warning to us. You can be very close to the things of God and be very far from the heart of God. You can be very close to the ministries of God and be very far from the mercy of God. Jonah is technically doing what God wants him to do, right? Now, it kind of feels like that obedience that your kids give you where you're like, that's not really obedience, you know, where he just kind of, fine, I'll do it, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, that's not really obedience, um, but that's, that's kind of what Jonah's doing here. I'm going to go through it as long, I'm just holding out hope that it's going to go my way. It doesn't go his way. He's not on board. It's a warning to us to evaluate our hearts, to see if we actually are on board with God's mission to reach the lost with the hope of the gospel. All right, second truth, and we'll look at verses five through 11 to see this. Sovereign mercy reorients our mission as God's people. Sovereign mercy reorients our mission it's God's people. So we've seen Jonah's selfish anger, and now we're going to see God's sovereign mercy. The sovereignty of God is all over Jonah. It's a huge point. Jonah, or God calls Jonah to, to go to Nineveh. God appoints, you know, this storm to, to, to come upon the, the sea. He appoints this fish to swallow up Jonah. And then here in this passage, 
this, the appointment of God of all of these things, his wielding of nature for his purposes is all over the place here. So he has this, his sovereignty is on display and then his mercy is on display too. And what we see here is the combination that when you have a sovereign God who is also merciful, he can show his mercy to whoever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. It's up to him. And that is exactly what Jonah had a problem with. So, Sovereign mercy reorients our mission as God's people. Um, let, me, let me read this, this little part again. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. So, so you kind of have the picture, right? Jonah's outside the city and he's looking on and he's still brooding. He's still mad. He, you know, he refused to answer God's question in verse four, right? Do you do well to be angry? And he just kind of, you know, just rubs it off like no and he, he goes out and he's sitting and waiting maybe God will do the right thing right like he said maybe God will finally do the right thing and destroy this city and so he's sitting and waiting okay now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him to save him from his discomfort I love that language okay God sends his saving grace, this grace to Jonah that will save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I think the author's really wanting us to see how happy Jonah is to receive God's mercy for himself. He's really pleased with that. Then it says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And then God questions him again. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This time Jonah answers. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, this is the lesson. We, talk, we read it earlier, but we're going to talk about it here point by point. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So, a few points here. First, the mission of God is the extension of the mercy of God to those who are perishing. So we see that. The people of Nineveh are perishing because of their evil. Their wickedness had risen up to the Lord, and he saw it, and he's like, go send a message of judgment to them. Because if they don't turn, they will perish. All right? So this is God's mission, the extension of his mercy to those who are perishing. Jonah, through his actions here, he is simultaneously, think about the anger that's in him right now. Like, you know, he's hot, and it's probably, you know, hot outside, like the weather's probably hot, but he's hot inside too, right? Like, he is, he is boiling over with anger that, that the Ninevites have not been judged. So he's simultaneously angry that the people of Nineveh hadn't perished, and you see how God uses this illustration to make a point, and... He's angry that a plant had perished, okay? He's angry that the 120,000 people of Nineveh were still alive. And he's angry that this plant that just randomly popped up one day and then died the next is dead. He's mad at the death of the plant. He's mad at the life of the people. Here's what we see. For Jonah... Caring for Nineveh required selfless sacrifice. 
caring about that plant. He didn't do anything to make that plant grow. God did. He's just enjoying the benefits of the plant. The plant asks nothing of him. The plant only provides comfort for him. And so when the plant's gone, he's mad because of the disposition of his heart. The reason he's mad at Nineveh for still being alive and for God not sending judgment on them is because in order to care about Nineveh, Jonah has to give up some things. Jonah has to take some risk in order to love them, in order to show them mercy. The primary risk, think about it, for Jonah to be happy that Nineveh was spared means he has to be willing for his own people to perish at the hands of the Ninevites. That's a possibility. We don't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know. But would you be willing to risk that? Would you be willing to risk your own safety, your own security, for the sake of the salvation of those who are perishing under God's wrath? See, if we're on board with God's mission, we become agents of his mercy to those the world and maybe the church would otherwise reject. Those that this city would reject, those that other churches in the city would reject, we have been called as God's people to reach because God's mercy is for them too. Not just us because we grew up in church, not just us because we go to church right now. If you love God, listen, then you will love who God loves. Jonah didn't. Jonah wanted to have this religious experience with God. He wanted to know God. He wanted to receive good things from God. And he wanted God to grant mercy to his people and for Israel to prosper under God's rule. But God loves more than Israel. God loves more than Trace Crossing. He loves more than the churches of Tupelo. He loves those who are not yet his people. He loves them. Do you? Do do you love them? Do you love those God loves? If you don't, you probably don't love God. Because Jonah tells us, if you actually think about it, you wouldn't be okay with it. If you don't love the ones God loves, you're not going to be okay with God. You're going to be angry with him. So again, it forces us to ask the question, what is the motivation of our ministry philosophies and practices at Trace Crossing? What's the motivation? We get so caught up in what we're doing, sometimes we forget to ask the question, why are we doing that? Why are we doing that again? Why are we meeting for life group again? If you're on board with the mission of God, if you're on board with extending the mercy of God to those who are perishing, your conversations in life group will change. Not just how can we build up this life group, how can we reach out? Who can we reach? How often are you praying for people out loud, by name, who don't know Jesus in your life groups? When you're on board with the mission of God because you have been transformed by God's sovereign mercy, you can't help but love the people that he loves. And it can't help but change the way you live your life. And finally, God's mercy, Jonah knows this. 
That's why he's so mad. That's why he's so bitter. And that's why he's recoiling from God's mission. God's mercy is dangerous. It's dangerous. He loves the kind of people that that most people would never love. He extends mercy to the most wicked people on the face of the earth. And if we're on board with it, we're willing to be an agent of his mercy to those people. That's why we call you and urge you to to not only pray, but consider, is God calling me to go to an unreached people group? God's mercy is dangerous. Not just because we would be agents of his mercy, but because it changes us. And we don't like to be changed. Jonah is faced with a situation here where he has to confess and admit that he's wrong, and he can't do it. He can't do it. He holds on, he holds on, he holds on to the bitter end. And I don't know how Jonah responded to this question at the end. Do I not have a right to show pity, to have pity on this great city? Yes, you do, because I just said earlier in the belly of that whale that you had sent to save me. Salvation belongs to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He saves who he wants to save. So I would urge us to get on mission with the dangerous, sometimes disturbing mercy of God and get to work to extend it to those in this city who don't know about it or who have yet to receive it. Sovereign mercy reorients our mission as God's people. Finally, I wanna invite you to turn to Matthew chapter nine. Matthew chapter nine. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus actually refers to himself as the greater Jonah. He says, someone who is greater than Jonah is now here. And so what we've tried to do is show you in every way that we possibly can, every way that we see, every facet of this, how is Jesus the greater Jonah? So that's, that's the last point I want us to consider today. Jesus as the greater Jonah. What do we see in this passage? So in Matthew chapter nine, verses 35 through 38, I'll, I'll first say, unlike Jonah, Jesus looked on a city with compassion. Okay, notice Jonah. He comes outside the city. He's brooding, he's mad. He looks back on the city and he's hoping for the city. But what's he hoping for? Destruction. He's hoping they'll be destroyed. He's hoping God will bring judgment. He doesn't have compassion on it. Now, look at uh, Matthew 9, verse 35. This is Jonah, by the way. He's not God, all right? Jonah's a sinner too, and this is what he forgets. But here's Jesus who is completely sinless and who is God himself. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sure, these aren't the, the, you know, the power structure at play here. These are, these are the weaker people who are likely following him around. But they're sinners, too. They've sinned against him, too. And he looks on them with compassion. And notice how he connects it to the mission of God. He says, he, then he looks at his disciples. After looking on these people with compassion, he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He looks on these people who are lost with compassion, and then he has this missionary zeal that overcomes him. Let's go to these people. So I pray that we would not be like Jonah, but instead we would be like Jesus 
and be overcome with missionary zeal in the nations and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And, and as we think about ministries here at Trace Crossing. Okay, secondly, unlike Jonah, Jesus desires for all nations to be drawn into the kingdom. If you look back just at Matthew chapter 8, um, after uh, healing the daughter of a centurion, we see uh, Jesus say this in uh, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marvels at the faith of the centurion. Um, and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so that's where Jesus reminds us that our place in God's kingdom is a work of his sovereign mercy and his free grace extended to us. Not by our birthright or anything else that we could ever come up with or do. Jesus desires for all nations to be drawn into the kingdom. Jonah only wanted Israel to receive this benefit. He only wanted Israel to receive this mercy. Jesus desires for people from all over to come in and receive God's mercy. Okay, and then finally, do you remember, do you remember that trouble that Jonah has? He has this problem with God's mercy and God's justice. He just he can't reconcile the two, and it just drives him insane. And maybe, maybe you felt that too. Like, how, how can God be just and then just grant pardon to people who have sinned against him so horribly? Even if you think about yourself, it's like, man, I've really just rebelled against God so much and I've sinned against him so much and I'm, I'm reading about all this forgiveness and stuff but it just doesn't make any, how can he just let me off the hook? You know, Jonah doesn't understand. How can God let Nineveh off the hook? He's not just. How could he do it? You wanna turn with me to Romans 3? This is where we see Jesus and Jonah, maybe most importantly. God is only able to extend mercy to Nineveh because of what Jesus would later do at Calvary. It's the only way. Jesus dying on a cross for the justification of the sins of the Ninevites. It's the only way God can extend mercy to them then because of what Jesus would do later. Paul tells us how this works in, in Romans chapter three. Uh, just for context, I'll start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, Ninevites and Israelites, Churchy people, unchurchy people, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, follow the logic here, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Here's what that means. It means that when Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God, the justice of God is poured out on Jesus. That's what it means for, uh, 
for Paul to write that it's through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ and then that God put him forward as a propitiation. That God's wrath against sin and sinners is satisfied and quenched in the death of Jesus. He's punished for Nineveh. He's punished for you. He's punished for me. His justice. And just before that, you're justified by his grace as a gift. And then Paul's gonna put it together here. He says, to be received by faith at the end of verse 25. Um, This was to show, listen to this, God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, like the sins of the Ninevites. Knowing that one day, Jesus would fully pay for all of them. I had one professor that talked about every single time God forgave someone in the old covenant, it was like swiping a credit card. It was like swiping a credit card every single time. And then when Jesus died on the cross, it was the full payment for all of those sins that God had passed over in his forbearance. And then in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, although Jonah struggled to reconcile the mercy and justice of God in his mind, Jesus reconciled the mercy and justice of God in his body on the cross. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, and we're about to come to the table to remember this, but as Jesus is hanging on the cross and his body is broken and his blood is shed, Jesus is reconciling the mercy of God and the justice of God. Both the mercy of God for sinners is poured out as Jesus hangs on the cross and the justice of God is poured out on Jesus. Not one sin ever committed under the sun will go unpunished. Every single sin will either be punished in hell or it will be punished in Jesus on the cross. So if you're here this morning, and you have yet to trust in Jesus, here's what you can be absolutely confident in. You can have confidence that Jonah refused to deal with. You can have confidence that the Ninevites could not have. That in Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven because he suffers the just punishment of your sins in his body on the cross. And the mercy of God, this great pity, this great compassion that God has for the Ninevites, he continues to pour out to those who have yet to trust in him. His mercy is free. His grace is free. You don't bring anything but your sin to God. We're gonna come to the table. And it is the most concrete picture of mercy and compassion from God that we have as the church. It's, it's for your participation. If, if you are a Christian, you don't have to be a member of this church. If you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus as the only hope of your salvation, then we invite you to come to the table to receive these elements with us. If you're not a Christian, we, we would ask you not to take of, of the elements. Um, hmm, message. Here's what we're celebrating. Here's what we're remembering. And here's what we're looking forward to. That God extends mercy to those who don't deserve it. 
He extends mercy to those who don't deserve it. Jonah didn't like that. We love it, don't we? Are we not the kind of people who eat it up, who love the fact that God shows mercy to those who don't deserve it because we know we don't deserve it? So let's celebrate God's grace to us in Christ. The way we do it, uh, I'm gonna instruct you in just a minute on how to, how to come and get the elements, but we're not gonna partake of it together as one body. What we're gonna do is as you go back to your seats, um, just gather up with the people you came with and uh, have one person pray over the elements, pray over uh, the bread, which represents Christ's body, which was broken for us, and, and then pray over the cup, which, which represents the blood of Jesus, which was poured out for us. Um, and then as someone prays, you can just take the elements there. Um, but as you pray and as you reflect, I want you to consider First of all, how this is a means of grace to motivate us to get on board with God's mission. And then also know that one day we are going to celebrate in the presence of God with people like the Ninevites who, just like us, did not receive or did not deserve to receive God's mercy. And I pray that as we are motivated to reach the city with the gospel, that there would be those who we don't yet know who through our efforts to be agents of God's mercy will one day in his presence enjoy that feast that we will have with the lamb who was slain for us. Um, I'm gonna pray for us and then I'll instruct us on how to come to the table. Father, thank you so much for your immense mercy, your immense compassion to those who don't deserve it. Jonah was angry at this, and so I pray that you would help us to evaluate our own hearts. It must be easy, we know it is, easy for us to be at odds with your desires, to make demands and claims upon your mercy, to presume upon it, to try to dictate who you show compassion to and how you do it. Father, if that's the case, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you would give us your heart that we would be warmed by your mercy and compassion and that out of that overflow, we would be agents of your mercy and compassion in our city. I pray that as we make decisions at Trace about our facilities, about our ministries, that we would be motivated by your mission to extend your mercy in the city. And Father, we are just speechlessly grateful that you decided to show mercy to us because as we've seen you appointed the plant you gave it growth you appointed the worm you appointed that wind you appointed the fish you appointed the storm you appointed Jonah you're the one in control and you're the one against whom we have sinned so you didn't have to show us mercy but you chose to so we thank you. It's ultimately shown in what Jesus came to do. You forgave Nineveh because of what Jesus would later come and do. And so now we look back on what Jesus did for us on the cross. His, your mercy and your justice are reconciled in his work on our behalf. We look back with gratitude we look in and we evaluate our own hearts. I pray that it would be a grace to us to put sin to death, to confess our pride, 
and to be motivated to be on mission with you. And then Father, we look forward to the day where sin will be a distant memory, where evil and suffering will be no more, where we will rejoice, where we will fellowship in your presence. And it will all be because of the lamb who was slain. We praise your name, Jesus, for what you have done for us. Now, empower us to respond with faith and obedience. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna come forward like we did last time. We're gonna start with the back rows, okay? So like back rows, if you guys will come and just come down the center aisle, take the elements and then go back out around. And then as soon as one row has gone down, the next row can come forward. So let's, let's come now, receive the elements. <laughs>